My friends, good morning. Thank you. Today, uh, perhaps predictably, I'm going to preach to you about Yom Kippur. Now I know what you're saying, Father, Yom Kippur, again? It's almost like a redundant thing to come to a Catholic Mass and expect something like this. I know I, I anticipate your sighs and your grief, and I'm sorry for that, but yes, Yom Kippur. This is a really important Jewish feast, and I think that understanding it will help us to understand, especially the Gospel, just a little bit better. The Feast of Yom Kippur is the most important of all the feasts in the Jewish holidays, their, their entire calendar. It's otherwise known as the Feast of Atonement. And, you know, trying to understand the purpose of it, if you were trying to get it in just like one little snappy line, you can think of the sort of break the word atonement down into its uh, subdivided English words. Atonement and the Feast of Atonement is focused on at one meant. It's focused on getting people who were once separated together to be at one. Specifically, it's focused on taking God's people and God and, and making atonement for all the ways that God's people just disappointed or sinned or fell away or offended throughout the year. They would have this one feast every year and always be to put God and his people back together at one. You can find a lot of the origins for this feast in the book of Leviticus. How many people have read Leviticus? Again, just a surprising amount. Last night there was probably 20 people here who said that they read Leviticus. How many enjoyed reading Leviticus? You're lying. You did not enjoy it. Leviticus is a, a boring, boring book. Uh, and it's that way because maybe you enjoyed it. I'm not trying to pick on you. It's that way because unlike many of the other books of the Bible that tell a story, right? You know, you don't sit, <laughs> you don't work throughout the day and say, oh, I just can't wait till I get a get home to my nice cozy chair and light a candle and open up Leviticus. Who knows what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to read a list of really boring rules over and over and over again. Because Leviticus is not a story. It's not telling, you know, the tale of Israel. Leviticus was not written for just like regular public consumption. Anyone could read it. But Leviticus was put together, specifically, as the name suggests, for the tribe of Levi. Leviticus for Levi. The Levites were the priests in the temple. And so the book of Leviticus is oriented towards or, or uh, you know, written for all of the different priests in the temple, telling them, on this day, do it this way. Wear this. Make sure you go to this place. Don't stay there for longer than this amount of time. And it sort of goes on. Leviticus has all of those rules in there. Rubrically, it's trying to describe the feasts of the temple. And the temple was a very, very important thing, not only for the Feast of Atonement, but for all of the Jews. The temple was the heart and soul, not of their religion, of their life. When the temple was built, it was built with very specific dimensions and decorated in a very particular way. It was meant to be a, a microcosm of the universe. Because God had created the universe, it was good. And people wanted to be able to honor that creation and also be with God. So they created the temple per God's instructions as if it were the entire universe in miniature. 
So there's different areas for different things. You know, they'll, they'll decorate it with images of the angels, images of the Garden of Eden, the place of creation. And then in the very center of the temple, in the very center is the Holy of Holies. And in the first temple, thousands and thousands of years ago, that was the place where God would dwell, the Ark of the Covenant. Think Indiana Jones was sitting there in the Holy of Holies. It was not a place where you thought about God. It was God himself sitting on the throne and surrounding the throne. So the prophets and the the ancients tell us was the Shekinah, the Hebrew word for the cloud of glory. You could sort of not see what was going on because God's glory was present there. So in this Feast of Atonement, inside the temple, based on Leviticus, it was the one time of year, like I said, where people tried to make atonement for their sins. Specifically, the high priest would try to make atonement for the sins of the whole country. But it was very strict. There was particular things he had to do. He would, wear, uh, he would wear a special garment, a linen garment that was seamless. There were no breaks in it at all. It was specially made just for this one day. And after he finished wearing it, it was never worn again. It was made just for this one feast of atonement. He would have to, you know, ritually wash his hands, his feet, his entire body in preparation, actually several times throughout the course of the feast. And then he would put on one set of vestments, special clothes, then he'd take him off, put on another set. When he was all washed and clean, when he was made pure, when he was wearing his Sunday best, or maybe his Saturday best in the Jewish calendar, he would enter into the Holy of Holies. Now listen up. No one just enters into the Holy of Holies. It would happen on this day, once a year every year, where the high priest would go in and he would make petition for the people, begging God for his mercy. And he would speak the word of the Lord. You don't just speak the word of the Lord in the Jewish religion. No one speaks it. Actually, Orthodox Jews don't even write it because if you write it, then that thing becomes so holy it can never be thrown away, erased, or you know, you must find a way to preserve it. The name of the Lord is holy and important. But this time, this day, this feast, they would enter in They would be right in God's presence, and they would speak his name. Now, to give you sort of a context for what people expected to happen, when the high priest would go into the temple, into this Holy of Holies for the Feast of Atonement, they would tie a rope around his waist. They would do that because they thought there was a likely chance that when he went into God's presence and said his name, he might just drop dead. And if he did that, they weren't going in after him. And they didn't want to have to wait a whole year before they could get someone to get him. So they would tie a rope around his waist thinking, if he drops dead and it's unsafe for me to go in, well, then we can pull him out, maybe. This was a a special and a holy place designated for this one feast, designated for the time when God and his people could come back together again. Along with entering into the Holy of Holies and making this prayer, the priest would offer sacrifices, blood sacrifices in the temple at God's command. After, I asked this last night too, do you guys, how many have read the book of Genesis? 
okay, at least in this Mass, it's more. Last night, there was more Leviticus than Genesis, and I was mad about that because, come on, I'm mad not because, you know, of anything real, but, like, treat yourself, people. Uh, this, is, this is Genesis. It's a real story. You can actually get into it. If you haven't read Genesis, do yourself a favor. It is enjoyable. You know, maybe you got to skip around a couple parts. The names get a little bit long, and I don't recommend naming your grandchildren after them, but it's a good story, and it's a true story. So, anyways, in Genesis... All was created good, right? Just like the temple, made in the goodness of the image of creation. But then when Adam and Eve sinned, things got complicated. Think about the thing that's causing you, that's that's caused you the most anxiety throughout your week. Can you think about it? Okay, that would not have ever happened. It never would have existed had that first sin not taken place. There was perfect union. There was perfect harmony. There was not an anxiety. There was not a concern. There was not a pain before that sin. But when sin entered into the picture, God and man, who were once, became fractured. They were divorced. They were separated because mankind chose to separate itself from God. And then that turned into a myriad of fractures and splits and divorces between other people, between mankind inside of himself, even between man and creation. Things just started breaking. And because of that, there was need for something to be put back together again. God actually made the first animal sacrifice, a little, you know, jeopardy knowledge for you there. Uh, After Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, it says that God gave them animal skin clothing. And a good question to ask is, well, where did he get that? He just said, abracadabra, animal skin clothing. No, animal skins imply animals. And this was a pattern of sacrifice. Actually, it was a pattern of covenant. Are you familiar with that word? Ooh, baby, we are going to get into it. Covenant is is more than a contract. It's more than like just a, a, you know, legal thing. It's when two parties that were separated, that were not related, become one when they, when they all of a sudden become related. They would do this. It's all throughout Genesis, all throughout the Old Testament, people entering into covenant with each other and especially people entering into covenant with God. It always involved a, a sacrifice of some kind. The idea there was, you know, it was legal language that I will keep this covenant, I will keep this agreement I will be united to you. And if I don't, then may it be for me like it is for this dead animal in front of me. It was, you know, sort of like you might hear a kid say, uh, uh, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You, you know, hopefully they don't actually (laughs) make that sort of promise. They're saying, if I should break this promise, then let my heart be crossed and take a needle and stick it into my eyeball. Like, Okay, that's, you know, keep your word, I guess. But it's the same idea with covenant, that there is a relationship that's formed with consequences for people who break it. So on this Feast of Atonement, where they're trying to renew the covenant, trying to reunite themselves with God, there would be some sort of sacrifice in atonement, again, at one with God. Then there was two more peculiar things I want to hit with you before I, I wrap this up and, and conclude it in the gospel. Two more peculiar things. One was along with entering into the Holy of Holies, along with offering animal sacrifice, there was also the concept of the scapegoat. 
Have you heard this before? In the temple, and then, you know, outside of it, the priest would choose two goats on the Feast of Atonement. Two different goats. He would tie a red cord around each one. One would be selected as part of the animal sacrifices for the day, an offering to God, this goat. The perfect, the unblemished, the the good, the choice goat. The other was called the scapegoat. And, you know, maybe you've got a scapegoat in the midst of your siblings or uh, in your job. But in a very real way, this scapegoat was the origin of the term. The high priest would approach this scapegoat, again, after having washed his hands and his feet and his body and put on the right clothes. He'd approach this scapegoat. He would lay hands on it. And he would pray a prayer over it that all of the sins of the people would be put on the shoulders of this one goat. I am not making this up. This is part of the worship of the Jewish people in the temple. All of the sins of the nation, the priest's own sins, would be placed upon this one goat with a red cord wrapped around its neck. And then this goat, burdened with sin, would be led out of the temple, passed from the Jewish people off to a Gentile, because, you know, once it's made unclean with all this sin, Jewish people don't want to touch it, it's, it's unclean. So a Gentile would take it out into the wilderness where it would be led far away, because, you know, you don't want the sin goat running through your backyard or coming back. It would be led far, far away, and then eventually in the tradition of the Feast of Atonement, it would be pushed off of a mountain, uh, and then it would die. This is sort of a, a thing, it was a miraculous thing. The red cord that was tied around each of the goats, when the, they would know that the sacrifice had been accepted, that the scapegoat with all of its sins had gone out and had perished and the sins perished with it, they would know that that was accepted when the red cord around the other goat would turn white. And rabbis and commentators would, you know, from thousands of years back would write, this happened every single year. It was amazing. This cord would turn from scarlet to white until they, actually it was a weird thing. They said that somewhere 40 years or so before the destruction of the temple, it stopped doing that. Uh, This is in their own writings, that there was this miracle that would happen every year. And then 40 years or so before the temple was destroyed, it just stopped and they didn't know why. The last peculiar thing is while all this is going on, right, we're, we're a high priest entering into the Holy of Holies, making prayer and petition before God. We're making sacrifices, trying to renew the covenant, trying to put God and his people back together again. And then we're taking all of our sin and pushing it on a goat and then pushing that goat off a mountain. While all of that is happening, especially while the priest is inside the Holy of Holies, which could take some time, right? Remember the rope they tied around his waist. No one really knew what was going to happen. Do you know what everyone else did? They just, they waited. They just waited and waited in the temple, around the temple, outside of it. Some, actually, this was part of the tradition, perhaps a little strange sounding. It's said that on that day of atonement, the maidens of Jerusalem, the, the virgins, would all wear white garments, not, uh, you know, their own, because they didn't want there to be a differentiation between the rich and the poor. There were special white garments 
provided from the Jewish people to all of the young maidens so that they could all be seen truly as they were. They would wear these and then they would go out into the vineyards and the gardens close to the city and they would dance and sing in anticipation of the relationship being restored. It became a really big deal. Actually, we have one of the songs still preserved in the Mishnah, the the commentaries uh, surrounding this Feast of Atonement. Here's the, the lyrics to, genuine lyrics to what they would sing. Around in circle gay the Hebrew maidens see. From them, our happy youths, their partners choose. Remember, beauty soon its charm must lose. Remember and seek to win a maid of fair degree. When fading grace and beauty low are laid, then praise shall her who fears the Lord await. God does bless her handiwork, and in the gate her works do follow her, it shall be said. You see, there was sort of uh, a jovial anticipation of, of marriage with this, with this feast as well, with all of the maidens of Jerusalem singing these songs about being wed, about beauty fleeting, and about God's works, the works of her being praised in the temple gardens. Well, after it all finished, the way that the feast wrapped up, when all of it's done, all said and done, then the high priest, once more, washing his hands, washing his feet, washing his body, puts off his linen garment, the one specially made for that day, and takes care of all the regular stuff for the day in the temple. And then he would wash his hands and wash his feet and wash his body and put on his ordinary layman's dress, and he was escorted by the people in procession to his own house in Jerusalem where there would be a huge feast. And that was how they wrapped it all up. Okay, that's the Feast of Atonement. That is Yom Kippur. Does any of it sound sort of familiar? Because actually, I think it's very eerily similar to our parable today. What do we have? We have a bridegroom coming, a covenant being made. We have maidens, virgins in festal garment who are waiting, waiting for that relationship to be restored. And at the end of the feast day, what do you have? You have the bridegroom coming forth saying, it worked. Our sins are forgiven. Our relationship is restored. And a procession from the temple to his house where there would be a great feast. There might be a couple other things that sounded familiar too. You see, Christ is the fulfillment of this feast. Have you ever heard of anyone else in the Bible who wears a seamless garment, a seamless tunic that couldn't be split? That was Christ on the cross when the Roman centurions were casting lots. It was the high priest's garment which tells us that Christ was the high priest, the one who made sacrifice to reconcile people to God. Christ is also the scapegoat in a very real way. Did that story sound familiar? Someone who had all the burdens and sins of the people placed upon him, passed off from the Jews to the Gentiles so that they might end up dying. That's Christ, my friends. Do you want to know something else that's eerie? I told you about the red cords, right? 
This is from the Jewish writings. This is not a Christian source. You remember they said that somewhere around 40 years or so before the destruction of the temple, the cords stopped turning white. Do you know what year that was? That was about 30 AD. That was the year of the crucifixion. The atonement was accepted, and there was no need for those goats anymore. Christ is himself the sacrifice offered to restore us to relationship with God. And having died, then he entered into the Holy of Holies, not in the temple. Remember, the temple's a copy. It's an image of the universe. It's an image of the place where God sits. Christ went into the real deal, the genuine article. He entered into the Holy of Holies to sit with God and now just like the high priest would enter into that place and everyone else would sit outside, now we wait. We wait. And maybe like the virgins, right, we run around the different gardens and the vineyards, we, we sing our songs, we're waiting in anticipation of being restored to him, we storm our football fields, we celebrate our victories, but we wait all the same. Because remember, remember the words of the maiden's song. Beauty soon its charm must lose. Then praise shall her who fears the Lord await. Beauty and ugliness and all things on earth, they all fade away because none of them have the importance of restored relationship with God, the one thing that lasts. Remember the words also of our parable today. If there is indeed, and I think there is, a connection between the virgins who waited and us who wait, along with all of the people who waited for the Feast of Atonement, remember the warning. The wise ones, they waited and they were ready. The foolish ones, they just weren't ready anymore. They gave up. And when they knocked on the door, do you remember what was said to them? Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. Harsh words, if this is applied to us. But don't forget the alternative. Because in other parables, we're reminded that if we do stay awake, if we are alert, if we're ready, if we're waiting, then it may be said to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, share your master's joy. My friends, all of us, each of us, me and you, will one day hear one of these two alternatives. You will be face to face with God, and you're going to hear that. That is not doomsday. It's not fire and brimstone. It's reality. And woe to me if I don't tell you about it. All of us are going to be face to face with God. And so now, persevere. Stay awake. Stay alert. Don't presume and set your priorities. Remember, I spoke about that song that the maidens would sing, that beauty is fleeting, and also is ugliness 
fleeting. I think that's important to bring up, especially now, because beauty can be distracting. Beauty has that, that sense in Scripture sometimes of allurement uh, away from the things that are most important. But do you know what else can be distracting and alluring? Ugliness. If you think about all the time that you obsess over the terrible things that are going on, the ugly things, the things that fill you with anxiety and, you know, make you say, oh my Lord, what's going on? It can take you from the place where you're prepared, where you're awaiting, where you know what's first. It can take you from that place and push you outside where all of a sudden you run out of oil. And I don't want you to run out of oil. So remember to stay awake. Remember what we're waiting for. Remember what's going on. And these times, and gosh, they are hard times, right? You know, you're, you're going to double overtime, and you're not really sure if Notre Dame's going to blow it for you again or if they are going to succeed. I, and, you know, I make light of some of the different things, but there are very real concerns that people have about the election, about COVID-19, real sufferings, about uniting in heart here in our very own Muncie Pastorate, real worries and sufferings. But I am here to tell you, the church has always had real sufferings. 2020 is not unique as much as we'd like to think that it is. <laughs> you know, it's not, oh, 2020. Oh, 1920. Oh, 1820. Oh, 20. The church has survived Attila the Hun, has survived the invasion of the Moors, has survived friction and fracture within her own ranks, has survived Robespierre's guillotine, Napoleon's armies, poison of skeptic philosophy. We've survived the Black Death. <laughs> we'll survive this too, but only, only if we stay awake, if we wait and remember. Our high priest is in the Holy of Holies. He makes atonement, and he's prepared a place for you. So today, and at least for the rest of the week, if you don't forget it, don't lose hope and stay awake. Amen.